Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's episode, Bishop talks about the highlights of his recent trip to Maryland for the fall meeting of U.S. bishops, then a continuation of last week's conversation on apocalyptic writing in the Bible, this time in the book of Daniel, including his vision of a son of man, beasts, and other symbols. And as always, the show wraps up with questions submitted by listeners. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, just go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. As always, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to share with us today. You're welcome. Good to be with you, Kyle. And this is our first episode that we have put out since you got back from the USCCB meeting. Last week's was pre-recorded, so we didn't get a chance to talk about that. A lot happened at the meeting, some things unexpected, I believe, on behalf of the bishops, and then a lot of things that are actually kind of getting overshadowed by the news that came out from the Vatican. you care to share, maybe start with that? What was your reaction to the the message that came from the Vatican? Yes, um, I would say my reaction was the same as my brother bishops. We were all very surprised mm-hmm. um, because the main topics for our meeting were to deal with this um, eradicating the evil of sexual abuse from the church and especially to look at those areas that precipitated the crisis of the last few months. So we were all set to discuss particular courses of action mm-hmm. that we were going to take. And then Cardinal DiNardo of Houston, who is the president of our Episcopal Conference, announced that the Holy See, the Vatican, asked us not to take a vote on these measures. And the only reason that we know is that they wanted to wait until February when all of the heads of Episcopal Conferences around the world will be meeting with Pope Francis to talk about this problem Mm -hmm. on a global level. So I, I guess 
I presume that um, they didn't want one nation getting ahead of it, but to really deal with this problem, which is really worldwide, not sure. just in the United States. But but I think we were still disappointed mm-hmm. because we thought it was important for us to move forward. And some of the things that we were working on is um, a process uh, for investigating complaints against bishops. And there was a proposal to have a third party compliance hotline. And then there would be a, a commission of lay people who would evaluate and investigate. There would be standards of accountability for bishops and a protocol for bishops who've been removed. So those were some of the areas that uh, that we looked at and or we're going to be looking at. We still discussed them, but we mm-hmm. couldn't vote on them. Uh, so there was a lot of, of um, I'd say, spirited discussion. I mean, there was definitely a firm resolve on the part of all the bishops to confront this problem, especially, I mean, we have confronted the problem of sexual abuse and misconduct by priests and deacons. But now what about sexual misconduct by bishops mm-hmm. or bishops who have not been diligent enough or who've been negligent in handling reports of sexual abuse of minors by clergy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the area that really is is lacking. We need to have some kind of accountability, standards of accountability for bishops that they deal with these situations correctly. And of course, follow the norms of the church and the Dallas Charter from 2002, which said that any priest credibly accused, any cleric credibly accused of sexual abuse of minors is to be removed. And uh, then there's a process, a canonical process in order to protect minors. We can't have anyone in ministry who has harmed a young person. And the charter and its norms have been very effective. We've seen a steep decline in uh, the number of cases, hardly any now, mm-hmm. uh, although one is always too many. But what happens if a bishop isn't diligent about things? You know, he needs to be held accountable. And right now, the only one who can hold them accountable is the Vatican, is the Pope. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of difficult for the Pope to be monitoring this all over the world. So so that's why we were looking at other, um, having a national lay commission, et cetera. Uh, so anyhow, um, we'll have to wait now till February. Cardinal DiNardo will be representing the United States bishops, and we're hopeful that it will be a successful meeting because we need the strongest possible actions that we can take for eradicating this terrible crime from the from uh, from our church. One of the things that generated a lot of discussion at the meeting was the need to get to the bottom of the Archbishop McCarrick situation. Mm-hmm. A lot of bishops were angry um, sure. that, you know, how was it that that he was able to get away with what he did, that he was promoted to be a cardinal, etc. So that investigation is ongoing and, and we really want transparency on that. I mean, it's important that we find out how that happened. Mm -hmm. So the Vatican is doing their own investigation of their archives and also the dioceses that were involved. They're also doing their investigation. So that was something that I think, um, I think all the bishops were very uh, strong on that, that we really want to know how that happened. That cannot happen again. So you mentioned not being able to vote, but that there was a discussion. Was there any results or outcome of the discussion? Is there any plan that is going to be proposed to the Pope whenever Cardinal uh, Cardinal Donato meets with 
Pope Francis? Well, it won't be. I don't. I don't know if it'll be a private meeting. It's it's a large meeting, and I imagine he's going to share with all the other bishops who are there and with the Pope what the thoughts of the U.S. bishops are. That we believe there need to be standards of conduct mm-hmm. for bishops. There needs to be this third party reporting system. There needs to be an investigation into the McCarrick situation, and there needs to be the involvement of lay people. So those are the principal things I think that uh, Cardinal Donardo surely will be sharing at the February meeting in Rome. I think also it was significant that at the meeting uh, early on the first day, after our day of retreat, we had a day of prayer together, which was really powerful. We, mm-hmm. A couple victims of sexual abuse spoke mm-hmm. during the, and we had a time of, of Eucharistic adoration all day. It was really very intense, very important that we began with prayer. But on the next day, we did receive recommendations from the National Advisory Council. That's a uh, that's a body of, of mostly lay people uh, from around the United States who give their counsel on the various agenda items for all of our meetings. So they were very strong also in, in this area of ridding the church of, of the scourge of sexual abuse. And then we also received recommendations from the National Review Board. Just as in every diocese, we have our own diocesan review boards that study and give recommendations to the bishop about allegations of sexual abuse of minors by clergy. Uh, So we have this body on the national level, Mm -hmm. which gives advice to the whole USCCB on national policy. So we received their opinion, their recommendations on how to address the the current crisis. And some of them were basically things that the bishops already were wanting to to do, but definitely calling on uh, transparency, accountability. We already have audits of all of our dioceses as far as how we conform to the charter, the articles of the charter. They're saying that... um, the audits need to be strengthened and also should be taking place independent audits of all our parishes to assess compliance to the charter and that our parishes and schools are complying with our diocesan policies on this. Now, it's interesting. Right now, the parish audits are optional from this independent national group, although I have to say I always choose that they do, Mm -hmm. that they go to some of our parishes every time they do an audit to see that it's actually being complied with on the local level. So I always find that the uh, advice of the National Review Board is helpful. And they also are calling for a national database for all clergy who've been removed because of the sexual abuse of minors. And I think that's a good idea. And they had other recommendations as well. But I think uh, it's important that... uh, that we have this national review board, just like we have a diocesan review board. So we have the expertise of the laity in these areas. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get back to the other things that were talked about at the meeting. But before we do, could you talk a little bit about the meeting that will be happening in February? Of the, It's not all of the bishops, but representatives of the bishops from all over the world will be meeting with Pope Francis. What does that meeting look like and what is the, the goal of that meeting? Well, it's the heads of Episcopal conferences. So the president of our conference is Cardinal Donardo. So those are the bishops that will be gathering with Pope Francis. And it's going to be a conversation about this problem of sexual abuse of minors in the church. 
I really have no idea how they're structuring the okay. meeting or, I mean, that hasn't been shared. So it may be similar to a synod where different bishops can get up and speak. I don't know if they're going to, I mean, I'm hoping that they come up with some changes and some plans of action, uh, especially given the things that we see that we need here in the United States. Sure. We need to be able to have standards of accountability for bishops. We need to have some process for people to report abuse and misconduct or neglect by bishops. We need to have a protocol of what we do when bishops have been removed from ministry. So those are things that, that we need. But honestly, I think they need those kinds of standards and policies all over the world. Sure. This isn't a problem just limited to the church in the United States. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Bishop. There are so many other things that happened at the fall meeting in Maryland of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so I want to kind of get into some of those other things and have you share those with us. If anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9500. 98. And coming up, we'll talk about some of the other things that may have been a little bit overshadowed or not publicized that much that happened at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops fall meeting here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, had their fall meeting in Maryland, and we talked a lot about the sex abuse issue that was brought up there. But there were a lot of other things that were addressed there, too, that were maybe a little overshadowed. Would you care to share some of those with us, Bishop? Well, I think one very significant thing is we approved a pastoral letter against racism. Mm-hmm. That got some press. It's, it's entitled, Open Wide Our Hearts. The enduring call to love, and I thought it was um, it was overwhelmingly approved. Our last pastoral letter on racism of the bishops of the United States was back in 1979. So this is a new letter, 50 years since the passage of civil rights legislation, and yet we still see racism. We see this terrible sin in our society. Uh, but I think the pastoral letter is is very good to to read. I encourage people to read it, to study it, to use it perhaps in adult education, sure. in our high schools, in colleges. Uh, I think it's it describes the sin of racism. It describes the racism that takes place by uh, groups as well as individuals. Sometimes you know a lot of it's targeted against African Americans, but also Hispanic Americans and uh, Asian Americans sometimes. So it's important because it's really part of our faith that every human person should be respected, has dignity, and uh, every human person deserves justice. And we do, we look at some of the historical context, we look at the experience of Native Americans, for example. There's sometimes racist policies and attitudes Sometimes even people not realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you, you notice something like if a derogatory name is used against someone because of their ethnicity uh-huh. or their race. But then there's still those who, who suffer for discrimination in various ways. So it's a very good letter, and um, it went through various drafts. I think it's really an urgent call to love and to be open 
to people of other ethnicities and other races. And of course, as Catholics, this is so important to us too, because, you know, that's what who we are. The church is made up of people of all different races and nationalities. Mm -hmm. And that's something beautiful. So I hope, um, yeah, I hope our listeners, if you, uh, could, they can find it on the website of the USCCB. They can find this pastoral letter. And um, I, I really do encourage people to read and study it. And probably the easiest place to find it is if you go to usccb.org slash racism. It's there. People can download it or read it online, print it off if you want. It's about 30 pages. So, yeah, like you said, a great resource for different ministries that are happening in our schools and our churches. Maybe, maybe even something that uh, you want to get a little group together and kind of read it together and discuss it and uh, check that out. It's a great idea. And, you know, connected to this, which I thought was very interesting, at this meeting, the Bishop of Jackson, Mississippi, requested that we advance the cause of canonization for Sister Thea Bowman, yeah, uh, an African-American religious sister, because before it goes to Rome, it, it has to have a... Uh, uh, recommendation from the bishops of the United States. So I believe it was a unanimous, well, it was a voice vote, and uh, that it was saying basically that we thought it was advisable to move forward to advance on the local level the cause for canonization of Sister Thea Bowman. Uh -huh. uh, really a remarkable woman. And I think um, that brought a lot of uh, good reaction, especially from the African American community, but also from others who who remember her. Uh -huh. She was truly a prophetic woman, and she was a religious sister who spoke around the United States and uh, led a deeply spiritual life. And uh, she was really a, a beautiful spokesperson for the dignity of all and for an end to, to racism. In what ways would you say that she's prophetic? Um, you know, she was the first uh, African-American woman to ever address the whole body of U.S. bishops. And mm. um, and I think her, her words were, were challenging. And she was prophetic in the sense of, of just calling us, as the prophets did, to justice, calling us to, to be committed to those whose, whose dignity has been attacked or not recognized. And I think she herself experienced prejudice in her life. She was the only African-American in her religious community of women. She was a Franciscan sister. And I think she just, uh, she exuded love. As she denounced injustice, she was a woman that was uh, definitely, you could see her love for God and her love for everyone. Hmm. I never met her. I did see her on TV. She also battled cancer. And even while she was battling cancer, she continued to speak and, and travel to, even though she knew her life was coming near an end, she wanted to continue to spread the gospel of peace and reconciliation. And a very recent potential saint as well, passed away in 1990, I believe. So, yeah. You, yeah, you, I forget what year, 1990? I okay. think so, yeah. Uh, also, some things on the agenda that happened. Uh, I assume approved the budget for 2019. Is that a big deal? or Not really. <laughs> Skip that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, did you talk about Julius Encuentro? There was a report on the 5th Encuentro 
kind of uh, just kind of a recap of that great event that took place down in Texas, and that was given by Archbishop Garcia Sierra, who is the Archbishop of San Antonio, along with Bishop Perez of of Cleveland. We also had a report on the Synod of Bishops on young people. Yeah, Archbishop Chaput and Bishop Caggiano, they gave a, a kind of a summary of the the synod to us. So those were not lengthy presentations, but very good. We also had a special recognition of the 40th anniversary of the bishop's pastoral statement on persons with disabilities. It's a very good document, still, I think, uh, very relevant. It was a a beautiful uh, pastoral statement, and it was really a challenging statement about how the church really needed to embrace people with various disabilities, making sure that they felt welcome mm-hmm. and that they were truly living as a part of the parish community. We need to welcome people who are uh, with disabilities and recognize the gifts that they have to share in the church. So we have an organization, the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. Our diocese is part of that. Uh, we're one of the the members of that national partnership, and so we certainly work hard at helping our parishes to make accommodations so that persons with disabilities, uh, if they're physical, can still, you know, participate and everything being accessible for people, et cetera, but also those with mental or emotional disabilities also, and what is the church doing? These are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sure. Another issue at the meeting was... Uh, We have one diocese in the United States that um, was under the jurisdiction of the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. I mean, Hmm. years ago, 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, actually, 150 years ago, a lot of our, we had many dioceses, mission dioceses that were under the Congregation for Evangelization because they were more like mission territory. Uh A normal diocese is under the jurisdiction of the Congregation for Bishops. Well, we still had one diocese left in the United States that was considered a missionary diocese and under the Vatican Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, the Diocese of Fairbanks in Alaska. And it is a a huge diocese as far as its area, the square miles. I don't know if it's the largest, it might be largest in square miles in in the whole United States. In any event, the petition was made from the Bishop of Fairbanks and the Archbishop of Anchorage that it come under the jurisdiction of the Congregation for Bishops. Okay, That's only something the Vatican will decide, but uh, the U.S. bishops agreed, and so we'll wait to hear if the... uh, if the Vatican grants this transfer from the Congregation for Evangelization of Peoples to the Congregation for Bishops. I mean, it's still very much a mission diocese, but the idea is that the Church United States can support this diocese. It doesn't have to come under the jurisdiction of the Vatican. We have enough resources in the United States to be able to help the Diocese of Fairbanks. We already do help them. We have every year in our parishes the Catholic Home Missions Appeal, I think uh, the Diocese of Fairbanks gets a considerable amount of of money from that collection. And I think they get help from the Black and Indian Mission Office and Catholic Extension. So it's a diocese that is missionary, but I think we in the United States can support this missionary diocese. So the bishops overwhelmingly approved that request. So we'll see what the decision of the Vatican will be. 
Of course, it's a very harsh climate up there. They don't have enough uh, vocations. It's one of the poorest dioceses in the United States. Hmm. A lot of the people there uh, have a very sub- just a subsistence lifestyle. There's a lot of Native Americans and Eskimo peoples. It's not self-supporting, uh, so they do need our help. All right. And they also need uh, more priests and religious. So it's uh, the church, hopefully, in dioceses can share some of their uh, priests, especially dioceses that are having a lot of vocations and also those that maybe have a priest who feels called to do missionary work. Why not Alaska? Yeah. Is that something that you would encourage your priests or seminarians to consider? Yeah, I'm open to that. I mean, I think, um, you know, I've been open to priests or seminarians serving in the military archdiocese because mm-hmm. there's such a great need. Yeah, I think we have to think beyond ourselves. I think the Lord blesses us when we share with those who are less fortunate. And certainly the Diocese of Fairbanks is a, a challenging place. All right. Well, we can definitely keep them in our prayers as well. And uh, coming up, I'd like to talk a little bit about Christ the King that we celebrated last weekend, and specifically the first reading, which comes from Daniel. I think it ties in a little bit with what we were talking about, about Revelation in the last episode. So that's coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about the meeting of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, but wanted to talk a little bit about an extension, I guess, from last week's episode. We talked about Revelation. You can find that if you go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or it's also available in the Redeemer Radio app. Uh, but if you missed it, it was a great kind of exploration of just one little section of Revelation. And I think it ties in really well with the first reading that we had at uh, Sunday's Mass for the Feast of... Christ the King, also known as it's uh, the epic title of the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which I, I just feel like that's a little bit more epic than Christ the King. Yes, yes. So, what what did we celebrate last Sunday uh, for Christ the King? Maybe you could just recap that a little bit. Yeah, it's the last Sunday of the, the liturgical year, and um, we recognize Christ as the Lord of the Universe, the King of all creation. The readings and the prayers of the liturgy for the Solemnity of Christ the King all have to do with his being the Lord, and not only of the universe, but he's to be the Lord and King in our lives, in the lives of our our families, the lives of our parish communities, and in our own individual lives. It's he whom we're called to, to serve. We are to be loyal subjects of Christ the King. And so he is all-powerful. But his kingship is so different because he didn't have any earthly army or didn't have political power. His kingship, as he said to Pontius Pilate when he was being interrogated, he said his kingdom was not of this world. Mm. He reigns not with material wealth or, or uh, military weapons. He reigns as king from the cross. It's the power of love and service. He gave his life for us. So it's a whole different kind of kingship. You mentioned the book of Daniel. Daniel was the fourth of the four major prophets. And um, 
the book of Daniel, like the book of Revelation that we talked about in our last episode, is apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it has a lot of symbolic language and various signs. It can be a little difficult to interpret sometimes. Yeah. So um, you need a decoder ring that's for all right. the symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really fascinating to study these books of the Bible. I think apocalyptic literature. Certainly the message of, of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign over, over the whole world and over history, hmm. that in the end he is victorious. And we see that also in the book of Revelation. But the reading that we just heard on Sunday, the Feast of Christ the King, was from chapter 7, and it's a very famous kind of uh, part of the book of Daniel. It's verses 13 and 14, so maybe just to, to read that was the first reading on Sunday. As the visions during the night continued, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. When he reached the ancient one and was presented before him, the one like a son of man received dominion, glory, and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. Now, as Christians, of course, when we hear that passage, who do we think of? We think of Jesus. Uh-huh. And the interesting thing is, if you, when you read the Gospels, our Lord often refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, 80 times huh. in the four Gospels. We don't find Jesus referring to himself with some of the other titles that we commonly use when we refer to Jesus, the title Christ or the title Son of God. Uh, Hmm. You know, when he's referring to himself, he always uses, not always, often uses that, that expression, Son of Man. And it's an expression we find in the book of Daniel. And the one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that title son of man may mean simply that Jesus shares the human condition, that he shares our human nature, son of man. And that's one of the meanings. But when you read this passage from Daniel, this is about the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven who receives dominion, glory, and kingship, and all nations, etc., will serve him, and his kingship will not be destroyed. So it's an allusion we see to the second coming of Christ in glory. He is the Son of Man who comes again, will come again, on the clouds of heaven. We see that in other passages of Scripture. So what does he do? This is an apocalyptic vision of God's final defeat of evil, okay? He receives this Son of Man, God's everlasting universal kingship. So it's a kingship of peace. It's of goodness. Evil is defeated, and the Son of Man is the agent. So this is the destiny. So we have this mysterious figure of the Son of Man. And it's very interesting how often our, your, our Lord uses this title for himself. 
He says things like, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm -hmm. In John's Gospel, you know, we read about the Son of Man who came down from heaven. And often in the use of the term Son of Man, it's linked to the sufferings of the Messiah, Hmm. also uh, his resurrection. So anyhow, I think it's um, on the Feast of Christ the King, which you, you talked about, we think about the glory of Christ the King, seated at the right hand of the Father. We see the fulfillment of this vision of the prophet Daniel, of the one who was given domination, glory, and kingship. Even at the beginning of Advent, Advent is beginning, uh, the focus is on this second coming of Christ in glory. And uh, so the liturgical year ends with uh, this theme of Christ as the victorious king of the universe. But then we also begin the season of Advent reflecting on the second coming of Christ in glory. So... One of the things that you'd mentioned last week was that to understand Revelation, you need to be familiar with some of the Old Testament apocalyptic writing. Are there a lot of examples of the symbolism from the Old Testament being the same as the symbolism in Revelation? Yeah, I mean, right before this passage from Daniel, we read about the four beasts that come out of the sea. Hmm. Well, remember in the book of Revelation, we have the well, two beasts, one that comes out of the sea and one that comes out of the earth. But it's very interesting to study uh, the similarities and the differences in the uh, understanding of what are these beasts. Now, that could be a a topic for another show, (laughs) because when you look at apocalyptic literature, Kyle, there's different ways to interpret it. We could look at the different schools of thought on this. One way to interpret it is this has to do with a symbolic representation of past events. Hmm. And that's true. When you look at this, you see some of those things represented did come to pass in history. But we don't limit it to that. There's also, you can look at throughout the history of the world or the history of the church, and you can see some of this being fulfilled. Or you can think about the future and the end of the world and see these figures representing that. So... I think the Catholic approach kind of looks at the whole thing. You have certain uh, different denominations that maybe just take exclusively one approach at interpretation. But that would be an interesting topic for discussion, the various ways of interpreting apocalyptic literature, particularly the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. I find it fascinating. I mean, you look at the number 666, for example. Mm. And you think about the Antichrist, but then you look at the Emperor Nero's name, and when you look at the numerical or the letters, et cetera, in the way they calculated things back then, the Emperor Nero's name would would add up to 666. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at things like that, and you say, okay, so that's a past interpretation. Nero was the beast and the Antichrist, or the Antichrist. But then you see this also Antichrist throughout history. And then we also believe that there will be another coming of the Antichrist before the end of the world. So uh, it's really fascinating. You can kind of look at it past and present and future. Yeah. Well, again, this is a topic that we could go for hours on, but we need to get to questions. Before we do, 
Friday is the Feast of St. Andrew, November 30th. Any thoughts on St. Andrew? Well, who was he the brother of, Kyle? I'll give you a question. St. Peter. Very good. Yes. And who did Jesus call first, Andrew or Peter? I don't know. Andrew. Okay. He went and brought his brother, Peter. Huh. Although that's only in John's gospel. Okay. When you read the synoptic gospels, I think Matthew and Mark, they're both called together. They were Uh both fishing. Possibly both happened where what we read in the gospel of John, Andrew went off. You know, he was listening to John the Baptist preaching. Uh And uh, when he encountered Christ, and then he brought Peter or Simon to Jesus as well. And maybe then at a later time, Jesus saw them again at the Sea of Galilee and called them both together. But but anyhow, he was the brother of of, uh, St. Peter. We don't know a lot about his life. Uh, The tradition is that he went off and preached in what would be modern-day Turkey and Greece, and that he was uh, crucified on an X-shaped cross. As you probably know, he is the patron saint of of Scotland. Probably the most famous golf course in the world is is St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, But anyhow, St. Andrew, just being an apostle, he was one of the first who bore witness to Christ, who uh, proclaimed the gospel as a traveling missionary in Asia Minor, and then ultimately gave, gave the ultimate sacrifice as a martyr. But we don't know a lot of details of his life. Why an X-shaped cross? Well, the tradition is that they just put the two wooden beams together and tied his arms to, uh, put them together as an X and tied his arms to both uh, beams. And then his legs, it was probably very, very painful, but I'm sure back then they used any kinds of means of crucifixion. Hmm. You know, crosses like the one Jesus died on or X-shaped crosses, there were probably all kinds of crosses. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have questions about Catholic values in other cultures and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This is Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes. I am asking questions that you submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question comes from Christine Grog from Immaculate Conception Parish in Auburn. Said, if an accused priest with credible allegations is initially removed from public ministry during the investigation period, and then after the official investigation is completed, the status of removed from public ministry remains rather than being dismissed from the clerical state, what does this mean? Okay, that's uh, thanks, Christine, for that question. If there's a credible allegation, as Christine mentioned, a priest is immediately removed uh, while a further investigation goes on. If it's credible, okay, he's staying out of ministry, the bishop has to report the whole case to Rome. The bishop does not have the authority to dismiss a priest from the clerical state. That can only come from the Vatican, from the Pope. So I would send a letter, what's called a votum, which is my opinion of the case, after our thorough investigation. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome would then look at all of that and make a decision about how we need to proceed with this priest. If they agree that abuse did take place, 
then they might go forward to have him what commonly we call defrocked, mm-hmm. laicized, dismissed from the clerical state. That's the ultimate penalty. He okay. can't call himself a priest anymore. I mean, in his soul, he's still a priest, but he can't where clerics can't do any of that. Uh-huh. And that's like the ultimate penalty, the ultimate sanction. Again, a bishop doesn't have the power to do that. Only the Vatican does. But what can happen is because of old age or for other reasons, the Vatican could decide that no, he won't receive that ultimate penalty. He can't exercise priestly ministry anymore if he abused a minor. Uh, So he would then live what we call a life of prayer and penance. Such a priest um, wouldn't be involved in any public ministry, but would still be a cleric and still under the authority of the bishop. And so that that's the other status that I think Christine is asking about. The status of, of uh, living a life of prayer and penance, which she speaks of as being removed from public ministry, but it doesn't go to that ultimate penalty of dismissal from the clerical state. So I hope that's clear. Okay, yeah. Bill Schmidt writes, the media doesn't do a good job of helping us understand the values and ethos of various countries around the world, some of which could offer us inspiration, even though some seem to be becoming more secular in their cultures. Are there several countries that you would point to as inspirations for us, or at least places we could look to see how Catholic values on such things as human dignity, marriage, family, integration of the faith into everyday life, etc., are at work in important interesting ways? Well, that's an interesting question, Bill. I find it really edifying to see how people are living the faith in various cultures. Mm -hmm. And there are certain cultures that we could say are more Catholic in the sense that Catholicism has kind of permeated the life of the people. Uh We see that in several countries of Latin America, for example. We could say that that was very true in Ireland although not so much today because of the secularization in Ireland. I think to look at some places where the church is really vibrant, especially in my experience in Africa. I mean, it was amazing when I was in Ethiopia and especially in Nigeria this past year to see the vibrancy of the church, many, many people converting, just the joy at the liturgies and the faith is really strong. Even in in Europe, you know, we can look to Poland as preserving our Catholic values in many ways, especially when it comes to marriage and family, etc. So I would point to those various countries. I'm sure others could point to other countries. Now, no culture is perfect. Right. You know, every culture needs to be purified by the message of the gospel. So we can't idolize any culture, but we're called to evangelize culture, to bring the values of the gospel to culture. And it's more difficult in our country and in in the West today because of the secularism Mm -hmm. in which some God is forgotten or the values of the gospel or the Ten Commandments um, are dismissed. So we need, I guess you could call it a re-evangelization or as St. John Paul II called it, a new evangelization. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, I think that's a really good question. I learn a lot from other cultures, just as other cultures can learn from our culture. 
there's good and bad, I think, in, in all cultures. But in certain ones, you see where Christianity and Catholicism in particular has had a, 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 a huge influence on the way of life of the people. And that's inspiring to see. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Join us next week for a special episode of Truth and Charity. The Feast of St. Nicholas, the patron saint of children, is approaching, and to celebrate, we're continuing our Truth and Charity tradition of Bishop answering questions from kids. This year, it's third through fifth graders from Mishawaka Catholic School. Hear about his favorite saints, ice cream flavor, and more. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.